Well, good morning again. It is hard abruptly to shift from that sweet <laughs> moment to me, but you don't always get the breaks in life. John chapter 13 this morning, Lord willing, we'll finish up the chapters. Great to have Pastor Roger here with us this morning. Many of you may not know he pastored this church faithfully for many years. And uh, actually, a couple years before he stepped aside, he told me that he thought I would be the next pastor. And I told him I thought he was outside of his mind. So maybe I ought to go to him for counsel today instead. I had a friend of mine this week call me, and he told me that he had been shown something by the Lord. He'd been stirred up. I'd known him for years. He's a Christian man, but it seems like business is always kind of more his priority. And it was encouraging to hear from him to say, you know, things aren't always going as well as I thought that they would have gone at this point. And he had this idea that he wanted to bounce off of me for some sort of a nonprofit charity kind of thing. I thought it was great and told him I would help him with it and that kind of thing. But uh, anyway, I was blessed by the call just to hear his focus for the Lord. You know, he said something to the extent of, you know, I, I'm facing my mortality, you know, not getting any younger, and uh, it hasn't exactly worked out the way I wanted it to. Anyone here ever feel like that? You know, you had big dreams growing up, and you thought you were going to be somebody? <laughs> you know, you grew up, and someone said, well, you're really pretty, you know, or you, gotta, you can dribble with your left hand, or, you know, something. And all of a sudden, you think it something, I don't know. And then time goes along, and it doesn't work out exactly the way you want it to, but then you fall in love with the Lord, and you find out it's the only thing that really matters anyway. Time came out this week with their list of the 100 most influential people in the world. I didn't know half the people on that list. I'd never heard of them before. Shows how connected I am. Some of them were like actors. Well, how is an actor influential? I don't know, but they are, according to Time Magazine. Interesting kind of going through that list. I don't know, do they look at the list? Maybe some do. Maybe some look at the list and they go, oh, I'm up a few spots from last year. I'm rising in terms of influence. Time makes no comment about whether they're influentially good or influentially bad. They're just influential. Personally, I find the whole thing preposterous. Not because I'm making a judgment on time. I certainly don't uh, judge those that are being added to the list. Oh, good for you. I don't care. I just think, think of it this way. What if we were to make a list of the 100 most influential people for the kingdom of God? At the top of the list would be, of course, Jesus Christ. And second would be, who cares? It make any difference at all whatsoever who number two is on that list. You could go all the way down the list. He's four, five, ten, fifteen. I rose this year from last year. doesn't make any difference at all whatsoever. And you know, when truth be known, truth be known, if time was really being honest, every year, I don't care, 2012, 1992, or 33 AD, the most influential man is still Jesus Christ, period. All you got to do is look up at the stars in the sky at nighttime, and look at the mountains, and look at the ocean and the waves crashing upon the shore. He's the one that's most influential. He's the only one that's worth being influenced by. And we've noticed that as we've been taking a look at the book of John and studying him. And I mean, first and foremost, in those first 12 chapters, seeing his, his miracles and his wonder 
the awesome splendor by which he conducted himself, the fulfilled prophecy, all of that. But then you get to chapter 13, and chapters 13 through 17. Last week we said it's known as the upper room discourse. He's done with his public ministry. Next time he's in the public, he's going to the cross. He's on his very last night of his life, and he's spending time with his closest friends, his confidants, his uh, disciples. And what we see is this very intimate side of Jesus Christ. Yeah, the miracles, the fulfilled prophecy, awesome. Chapters 13 through 17, the intimate side of Jesus, even better. The love and the servanthood by which he conducts himself in these chapters is unmatched. Last week we saw him washing the feet of his disciples. Again, preposterous. It was against rabbinical law for even a disciple to wash the feet of the master. That wouldn't even be required of a disciple, let alone for the master to wash the feet of the disciple. And that's exactly what he did. And he turned, accordingly, the whole social order upside down. And he declared to you and to me that love is more important. He declared to us that servanthood is the greatest thing that anybody could be in the kingdom of God. Servant is one who lives to make life better for others, Gail Irwin once said. And don't ever forget that. Because I don't care where you are, and I didn't see any of you on the list of the top 100. But even if you were like 1,500 or 15,000, I don't care who you are, if you go home to be with the Lord and you're a Christian, and you stand before Almighty God someday, he's going to say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Not worship leader, not Sunday school teacher, not soul winner, not hoopster. He's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. No titles. No extra special recognition. You were faithful in a few things. Now we'll make you ruler of more things. It's always going to say. And so Jesus' message here, it's even more precious, isn't it, in his final hour to say love each other, wash each other's feet, take care of each other, because as we go through life, we said this last week, we attract dust on our feet. Our walk gets a little bit muddied. And so we need to wash each other's feet. We need to love each other. We need to extend grace to each other because this is not an easy life. It's a difficult life. And it's the message he wanted to leave them with as he knew he would soon be leaving. Well, this week we see just a little bit of a twist. Because he washed all of their feet last time. We saw that. All 12, right? Not 11. All 12. This week, he identifies the man whose feet he washed that we're going to see is going to betray him. And speaking of Jesus Christ's love for all people, you're going to see him even loving Judas to the very end. Take a look where we picked up last week, beginning... In verse 18 of John chapter 13, Jesus speaking here, it says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. It's Old Testament prophecy there, but it essentially means 
He's lifted up his heel against me like a wrestler tripping someone with their heel or kicking someone in the teeth is sort of what he's saying as far as referring to his betrayer, okay? And it's the very heel, by the way, that Jesus had just washed in our text last time. He says, now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. And notice he there in your Bible is in italics. I mean, it's not included in the original language. It's assumed it's there. It's really Jesus saying that I am, which is the calling card for God. He always referred to himself as I am ever since the burning bush. I am that I am. And that is the purpose, by the way, always the purpose of prophecy is so that you will know that I am, that he is, that he is the I am when things come to pass. In other words, in a few minutes in our text, or in a matter of hours in the lives of the disciples, when Judas is revealed as the betrayer, they will even more so believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. And not that some plan went awry, unexpected, but that what happened was exactly expected. This was what was supposed to happen. It was not a surprise. Prophecy oftentimes would work two ways in the Old Testament. There would be both an immediate fulfillment in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament writer wouldn't even know that they were writing about something that would be later fulfilled, eventually fulfilled in the New Testament. King David, writing in Psalm 41, a Psalm of David, a thousand years before, was the one who wrote, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. David was actually speaking of a very close friend of his, a friend by the name of Ahithophel. Actually, what happened was when David's son Absalom rebelled from David and tried to split the kingdom in half, Ahithophel, who may have been David's best friend, close confidant, advisor, the kind of person he would listen to for counsel, Ahithophel went with David's son Absalom in the rebellion. And so David, he knew full well what it was like to be leading and to be betrayed by a friend. And by the way, both of these friends that betrayed their masters went out afterwards and hung themselves. So the analogy here from old to new, it's the same kind of scenario. And David, as he looks back and as he reflects on how it made him feel, this is what he wrote in Psalm 55. <clears throat> He says, it is not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. It is not my foes who so arrogantly insult me. I could have hidden from them. Instead, it is you, my equal, my companion and close friend. What good fellowship we once enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. Everybody probably in the room here this morning knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. It's about as gut-wrenching and heartbreaking of a feeling as you can possibly have in this world. But what is so encouraging about this in this instance is that Jesus is forewarning the disciples that it's going to happen so that when it does happen, they won't be stumbled by it. Which is to say, hopefully for us as Christians, and if we're paying attention at times, we too will not be so easily discouraged when heartbreak comes our way 
that is just as predictable to God. What am I saying? Well, the life of Joe Shoup is not a part of prophecy that we can refer to in the Old Testament. But it doesn't make it any less predictable to God. Does God know what's going to happen to me today, tomorrow, the next day? He knows. And you might say, well, some solace. I have a tough break, and you say, well, God knew about it, therefore it makes it all better. Yeah, it does. Because it's a part of his plan. Because in this case, it was used for his glory. He knew what Judas would do. He let the disciples know it would happen so they could look back and go, God is in control. He is sovereign. It does go through his hands first. I didn't read this book, but I pulled out just a few excerpts from a book entitled The World's Worst Predictions. <laughs> King George II in 1773 said, the American colonies had little stomach for revolution. Yeah, I don't think he was right about that one. <laughs> An official of White Star Line, speaking of their newly built flagship, the Titanic, declared in 1912 that it was unsinkable. And in 1939, the New York Times said that the average American would never have time to watch TV. <laughs> Which means there are no average Americans in this room here this morning. Here's one prediction that I'm going to make this morning that will not fail. And the reason I'm able to make it is because it comes from God's word. You will, as a Christian, go through trials and tribulations, period, the end. That's just the way that it is. The encouraging part about it is that what Jesus is telling them, he would also tell us. He would also say, because I know in advance that you're going to go through difficulty, you have the opportunity to be prepared so that when it happens, you can look back and thank him for being prepared. In other words, for instance, if you pay attention, maybe to something that God might say through the sermon this morning, maybe to a conversation you might have in the fellowship hall afterwards, maybe to a song you might hear in the car on the way home. You might just get the word of encouragement that you'll need for when the trial comes later this week. Because that's how he works. That's how he operates. According to his foreknowledge, if I'm paying attention, I'm prepared so that when it does, I don't stumble by it. I go, Lord, you prepared me for this. I should have known it was coming. Thank you for doing that. It's a great source of comfort. Well, verse 22, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. In other words, listen, <laughs> not everyone is going to receive the Lord. Not everyone is going to. Even someone like Judas who walked with Jesus for three years. So don't be stumbled by this. Some people will not receive me. When Jesus had said these things, verse 21, it says he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And this is, you know, Leonardo da Vinci's painting immortalized this scene right here. You've probably seen the painting before. It's a stunningly beautiful, probably not very accurate, but a beautiful picture. And you can see all of the disciples bewildered, like dumbfounded. Are you kidding me? What? They're turning to the side. They're inquiring of one another. How could this possibly happen? 
they were not, as we've said many times before, all looking at Judas. They did not say, it's him, right? It's him. Think about it. What if this morning I were to declare to you that someone in this room is a betrayer? Instantly, we all start looking around. Who is it? We would. We'd start looking around. And Matthew 26 says that all of the disciples looked within first. Which, by the way, one of the few good things we can say about the disciples before Pentecost, right? Usually they were blowing it. In this instance, they went, is it I? Is it I? Like if I were to say someone's going to sin today, we should all go, Lord, is it I? Lord, can you help me? Lord, can you protect me from that? Something really good to emulate about the disciples in this particular instance. Though the other thing that's interesting about this is that Judas had them all fooled, right? He had them all fooled. It's a great reminder because I'm not comparing any one of us to Judas. If you're born again of the Spirit of God, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you can't be Judas. You're going to heaven. You don't have to worry about that. But you can at times deny your Lord. You can rebel. Anyone ever rebel from the Lord in this room? Of course. We've all done it. So we can at times learn from this example because sometimes outwardly I can make it look like things are fine, but inwardly I'm far from God. And that's sort of what Judas was doing. Now, he was doing it all the time, but we do it sometimes. Sometimes we got our act together. Sometimes everything's fine. Got a smile on my face. Praise God, raising my hands to the heavens. But inwardly, you're far from God. Inwardly, that intimacy isn't where it once was. And that's why God said here that he was troubled in the spirit. Now, in context, he said that before, a couple chapters ago. But when he said it the first time, the context was the cross. This time, the context is betrayal. But I don't believe that Jesus is troubled in spirit because someone is going to betray him, but because there is one that will betray. Does that make sense? He is upset because of that. So many times growing up, they would say, God is a jealous God. I'd be like, what in the world does that mean? Or do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Like, like God is jealous at me or grieved because of me or mad at me. Nothing could be further from the truth. We just sang it just a little while ago. He is jealous for me. He's not disappointed in me. Whatever you did yesterday... Whatever you're going to do today, he's known for 10 billion years. You don't take God by surprise by your actions. He knew exactly what he was getting when he got you. But he's grieved for you because he knows that sin brings sadness and sorrow into your life. That's why Jesus is troubled here on Judas's behalf, I believe. And I don't think the creator of the universe fakes it very much. Like, I think when he's troubled, I think everybody knew he was troubled. Look at the reaction of the disciples here in verses 23 through 26. It says, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John, by the way. He always refers to himself that way. I used to think that was kind of weird. I don't anymore. Now I rejoice whenever anyone I know that's a Christian has the confidence to refer to themselves that way as the one who God loves. 
is if you have that confidence, there's nothing better than that in the world. That's all John was saying. I just know that he loves me. And we were singing it all morning. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. And he proves it here in our text this morning. Well, Simon Peter, that's not good enough. Therefore, motioned to him to ask him who it was of whom he spoke. Then, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So in those days and in that culture, you have to understand a little bit about how this whole thing worked. It probably wasn't some big, long European table with these fancy French chairs or whatever the case may be. I don't know. It's sort of like a U-taped, a U-shaped coffee table kind of deal, I think, is what they would have been sitting on. Probably on the floor in those days. And I believe they would recline sort of like on cushions. So maybe like if you're right-handed, you eat with your right hand, and you'd be reclining on like a pillow or something. So John is leaning on the bosom of Jesus like this. Many believe, I don't know for sure, many believe, though, that because Jesus was able to dip the bread and hand it to Judas, that the person sitting next to Jesus was Judas. Well, that would have been the place of honor in that day. To be seated next to Jesus, the person to the left would have been in the place of honor. I find that interesting. Almost like Jesus is toasting Judas. You know, for those that think that Judas got an unfair lot in life, I disagree. I disagree. I think Jesus tried over and over and over again. Last week, he washed his feet. Well, not last week, but we saw it last week. He washed his feet. Here, he toasts him. He puts him in the place of honor. And then later in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas comes to betray him, and he comes like nothing's going on. Greetings, Rabbi. And Jesus said, why are you here, friend? Even then, Jesus, I think all along, reaching out to him. You know, and I believe, and I'm sure you do too, this is just my opinion, but I believe had Judas confessed at that moment in time, he would have been saved. Why are you here, friend, if he had said, I was going to betray you, and indeed I have betrayed you, Lord, please forgive me. I believe at that moment in time, he would have forgiven him, and he still would have gone to the cross. And God's plan would have still been satisfied. G. Campbell Morgan once wrote, Foreknowledge is not causation. He knew from the beginning who it was who should betray him, and yet up to the last, he gave Judas the chance to halt, to turn from his wickedness. And yet we read in verse 27, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. However, having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. And that, I think, means something in the Gospel of John. I mean, if you were looking at the other Gospels, maybe that would just refer to the time of day. But John uses these parallels. And as far as I'm concerned, it's like he was saying, and that was a really dark, dark night. Because he uses lightness and darkness. Remember, Jesus himself said, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
In fact, I think the whole story of Judas could be summed up by what Luke wrote concerning him in Luke 22, and he went his own way. That's ultimately what Judas did, was he went his own way. By the way, again, I'm not comparing any of us to Judas, but that's my problem. How about you? Is when I go my own way. When I go, no, Lord. Like, you know what you're supposed to do, right? Sometimes people come to me for counsel, and they know what they're supposed to do. Hey, Lord, I, w- I want to ask the Lord a question. Joe, maybe you could help me out with it, blah, blah, blah. And you know what you're supposed to do. You already know. But we want to go our own way. Sometimes I'm, I look for someone who will tell me what I want to hear. Because I want to go my own way. And that's the same kind of spirit. In Judas's case, it led to outer darkness. It's not what I'm talking about for us. But I'm saying it can bring dark moments into our lives when I try to go my own way. But nevertheless, just to put this thing to rest, he had a fair shake. God reached out to him. He revealed himself to him. He saw the fulfilled prophecies. He saw him restore sight to a blind man. Have you ever seen that before? No. He saw him raise someone from the dead. You ever seen that? No. Judas saw these things. He was without excuse. As it's been said, the same sun that melts the ice only hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Some are going to receive and some are not going to receive. Well, Judas leaves. He's off the scene. I'm thinking at this point there'd be some analysis some dialogue, like where is he going? Was he the one who's going to betray you? Let's get back to this subject. But Jesus here, he shifts the subject because he's got something much more important on his mind. He is facing his death. He knows he's going to be preparing soon for his death. The clock's ticking. And he's trying to get them on the the same page as him. So he says in verse 31, So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. What he's saying is he's saying, look, Judas is left. I told you this was going to happen. This doesn't surprise me. This is now the hour of my glorification. What was going to be the glory of the Son? It was going to be the cross, right? It was going to be his death in which ultimately glory would be brought. He's saying that time has come. What just took place here is set a course of events in motion. Don't worry about that. That's what's supposed to happen. But what he wanted them to do was to be prepared for the fact that he would soon be off the scene. So he says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, always John, when he says the Jews, he's referring to the religious leaders. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come, so now I say to you. Wait a minute, I thought you were just always saying that to them because, like, they were the, you know, holier-than-thou types that weren't really listening to you, rejecting you as Messiah. No, I'm saying it to all of you at this point. And I don't think they know exactly what he means. When he says, where I'm going, you cannot come, I'm not so sure that they quite get that. I don't know if they're going, oh, maybe he's going to go take his ministry somewhere else. Why can't we go? I don't know if they understand that that meant he was going to die, that he was going to resurrect, but then he would be ascended and they couldn't go because they'd have to stay and do his work. I don't know that they got that figured out at this point. 
But Jesus is just trying to get them on that point because that's what he wants them focused on. He wants them focused on a command that he's going to give them that he wants them to keep once he departs. And it is a command of the utmost importance. And if we get nothing out of today, we have to get this right here. Right here, this is what we have to get out of today. Not that you haven't heard it before, but it's God's message for us this morning. Verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Well, how is that a new commandment? Didn't the Old Testament say that as well? Yeah, it did. The book of Leviticus says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a new commandment in the degree of which it's given. There are five words Jesus adds to this commandment that takes it to a whole new level. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. You see, before it was love your neighbor as yourself. Now it's love your neighbor more than yourself. Because that's how he loved us. Washing our feet, dying on the cross for our sins. This is a new commandment. As I have loved you, that you love one another. Pastor Damien Kyle, pastor of Calvary Chapel Modesto, once said, I don't know that this isn't the single greatest, most disobeyed commandment by Christians in all of Scripture. This one right here. And that's why we lay claim to it this morning. That's why we make an emphasis on it this morning. Because we need to get better at this. And here's one of the reasons why. Here's the vital reason why. Verse 35, because... By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the problem. That's the wonderful thing, but it's also the problem. You can go to a wedding sometimes with two people getting married that don't even believe in God, and they'll still quote 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage on love, because it is beautiful. It's wonderful. It could only come from God. And I know we don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to read it because it works here. So important for us to reflect upon. Just a snippet of it. Apostle Paul writes, Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I never get tired of reading it. And it's wonderful, as you've probably heard before, I know it's cliche, but let's just say it again, that you can take the Lord Jesus' name and you can insert it everywhere there where the word love is, and it's a perfect match. But you can take my name well, let's use Rogers because we used me in the first service. <laughs> I already got mine, so. You can put Rogers' name in there 
Let's use Mike Hadley. You can put Mike Hadley's name in there. Mike suffers long and is kind. Mike does not envy. Mike does not parade himself, is not puffed up. Mike does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Mike bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's okay. You can say that that's not necessarily a perfect description of Mike Hadley or anybody else. It doesn't work for anyone, does it? And whether you want to be humbled in life and you want to be brought back down to earth a little bit, just insert your name there. Because it doesn't work for us. And Jesus is pleading. He's pleading with these disciples who don't realize that they are going to become soon a target. They're going to become a target from a world that's going to become very hostile towards them. And what they didn't know at this point, but what they would soon find out eventually is how badly they would need each other. And I'm not so sure that God isn't saying the same thing to all of us in the room this morning and the entire church for that matter. That there is coming a time, if it hasn't already come, more and more, where the world is not going to love us. He said as much, didn't he? In John 15, he said, if they hated me, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you too. So that will only become worse as time goes along, I believe. And so we will need each other even more so. But then he takes the stakes even higher than that. Not just because we need to love each other, because we need Christian love and encouragement and fellowship and companionship because we need all those things, but because he says, this is the way that they'll know that you're my disciples. That raises the stakes a little bit. Enormous stakes attached. And God never loses sight of what I'm so prone to lose sight of, that the minute that I become a Christian, then the world has an expectation of what I'm supposed to be. And love is that one thing. It's the one thing in our lives that people can look at and they can't understand. That's what he's saying. He's saying that's what we hang our hat on. In other words, if you were to get rid of your Christian jewelry and your Christian t-shirts and your bumper stickers, even if you didn't have your gifting anymore, you didn't preach no mastery of apologetics. You couldn't sing. If you were to get rid of all of those things, could the world still recognize you as a Christian by the love that you have towards other Christians? That's the challenge that he's posing us. That's what he's saying. That's what will be attractive. That's what will be undeniable. Forgive me for the poker illustration. It's not an endorsement. But it's like Jesus is saying, here we go. And we're going all in here, and we're going to lay all the chips on love, and we're going to win or lose on it. And that's what he's saying. And I believe him. And yeah, we like to preach the Bible here, and we love to worship here, blessed. And we have fellowship, and we have studies and all these things, but you know what? When it's all said and done, what we've chosen, when our newly launched website comes out in a couple months, 
this verse will be at the top of it. This is the verse we've chosen to be our theme verse, that we will have love for one another. That's our hope, that that's what the takeaway is when people leave this place. And we need to work on it. There was a woman here last week. She had been gone for six months. And I was told she left for some other reason, and that's fine, and everyone can go to church wherever they go to church. It's between them and the Lord. Praise God. But that wasn't the case. She had been on her back for six months in bed and couldn't leave the house. And I was brokenhearted because I wanted to visit her. I wanted to love on her. I know you would have all, too. She didn't, it's no one's fault. She didn't blame a single person. She said, I never picked up the phone and called. I'm just saying, God wants us to love. And I want us to hang our hat on this as best as we can. If I could exhort us in anything, let's be a church that loves. That's known as a church that loves people. That's how they'll know that we're his disciples. Now, as beautiful as that verse is, as profound, as deep, as far-reaching as it is, as much as you want to just reflect on that all day long and just soak that up, Simon Peter, verse 36, said to him, Lord, where are you going? (laughs) Missed the whole thing right over his head. Let's go back to what you were saying before. I didn't hear anything about the love part, but you said something about you were going somewhere and that I couldn't come. I missed that. Can you explain that to me? And Jesus, of course, in his mercy, answered him and said, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Praise God. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, according to tradition, Peter was willing to lay down his life for Jesus. And we believe he was crucified, upside down as it was, in like A.D. 64, 65, something like that. So maybe he was willing. In fact, maybe at this moment in time when he said, I'm willing to lay down my life for you, maybe he really in his heart meant it. But what's interesting is he was willing to lay down his life, but he wasn't willing to stand up to the accusation of a servant girl. Because as we'll see soon in our text, Peter does indeed fulfill Jesus' prophecy that he would deny him three times. To Peter, a a servant girl's words were sharper than an executioner's sword. And so he failed. And it tells me something I have to be reminded of so often, and I know you do too, and that is that I cannot have confidence in the flesh. I'm telling you, willpower doesn't work in the kingdom of God. You may read some book, And God bless you, if you're into personal development and that kind of thing, I'm not here to talk you out of that, but it doesn't work. I need to be dependent on his power. I got none. And you know what? If there was a list of the 100 most influential of all time and there was number two, again, it doesn't matter, but it probably would be the Apostle Paul. And here's what he said about willpower. He said, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. 
For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. In other words, I want to, I'd like to, but I just don't. I'd like to be better, but in the flesh, I can't do much. But with him, Apostle Paul would say, with him, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So there's the balance there. And by the way, that was the big difference for Peter too. Because this story has a wonderful ending. It may be several years before we actually see it. But you get to Acts chapter 1. And Jesus ascends to heaven. And there's still a bunch of people in an upper room gathered around. And no one knows what to do next. And who stands up and speaks? Peter. Then you get to Acts chapter 2, and a bunch of people are gathered around, and 3,000 people got saved that day, and who gave the message? Peter. What was the difference? This time, he's filled with the Spirit. This time, it wasn't in his will. It wasn't his determination. It was the Holy Spirit working in his life, his reliance upon not self, but on God. Now, here's the best part as we close this morning. The best part is that Jesus predicted it. Jesus told these guys many times, you will be witnesses for me. Go throughout the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples, baptizing them, etc., etc. He made these predictions to Peter and to the rest of them throughout. And yet he also predicted to Peter, you will deny me three times. Why did he do that? And it's special. It's really special. In the same way that he warned them of Judas's betrayal so that they would not stumble, he warned Peter of his denial so that he would not stumble also. In other words, as Peter looks back and as he sees that he blew it, he looks back and he goes, oh, the Lord told me I would do this. Now, for a second, he probably wanted to quit, but he didn't. Because he knew that the Lord knew. He knew that God expected that to happen. And that then he would get back up off of his feet and still serve him. All of that to say this. God loves you. He knew what he was getting when he got you. He knows you're a sinner. He knows you're even worse than you probably think you are. But he loves you more than you realize, and he knows he can use you more than you could ever realize also. What a wonderful, loving act of God to say, young man, you're going to blow it, but I'm going to use you anyway. In fact, you do blow it from time to time, and I love you and I'm going to keep washing your feet, and you need to keep walking. Amen? Lord, thank you.